tonight we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4. And as we look at this, we're going to see that Paul concludes his letter with themes such as joy, peace, and contentment. But we have to remember, as he wrote these words, he was not a free man. He was imprisoned. He was chained to a Roman soldier. He was not in control of his situation. There were many people that had become his adversaries seeking to destroy his work. But in the midst of these difficulties, these hardships, Paul was able to experience joy, peace, and contentment. And the best part about it is he gives us insight on how we can have these qualities in our lives as well. So I want to break up our study tonight into these three topics, joy, peace, and contentment. So let's look at joy in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Therefore, that's how he starts out. So we have to look back to the end of chapter 3. Paul is reminding them they are citizens of heaven not of this earth. And because they have a glorious future awaiting them at Christ's return, when even their bodies will be transformed into the image of Christ, they were to remain steadfast, to stand firm in the faith. And if they would do this, they would experience joy together. And you know, ladies, we find joy in our fellowship, in the time that we spend in one another's company. Paul declares that his joy and love for this church, and he calls them his longed-for brethren, they had become his crown, that finishing touch to his ministry. He was so proud of their spiritual growth, and they had become a source of joy for him. He was so connected with these believers. And as you spend time with other Christians, it becomes a source of joy for you as well. You encourage one another as you come together and you grow in the Lord. You, you experience the ups and downs of life together. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Um, and so we are able to bring joy and, and growth to one another. This is what I love about the women's study. We're able to come together and go through God's word and pray with one another. And there's a, a real joy in that fellowship and time we spend together. And so joy is also a result of standing fast in the Lord. So we experience it together, but we must stand fast in the Lord. And this was a direct command. So we are called to stand fast in the Lord. And you know, ladies, we do help each other as we pray together, as we share together, as we fellowship we are to stand fast, to stand firm, to persevere, to persist. We are to keep one's standing. And if you stand fast, you will have joy. I can't tell you the amount of people that I started my Christian walk with. And they stopped standing. They went back into the world. And they have no joy. They have ruined their lives. Because I'm going to tell you something. It does take work to stand fast. He's already addressed this issue in Philippians 1.27. He tells them that he wants them to stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So there is a striving. It takes focus to stand fast in the Lord. 
1 Corinthians 15, 58, uh, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so we are to be steadfast and immovable. How do we do this? By abounding in the work of the Lord, keeping yourself in that place where you are accountable. We just learned in Ephesians that we're to take our stand against the enemy. Because as Christians, we stand arm and in arm against the enemy. And uh, you cannot stand firm if you're involved in discord among the brethren. You're going to forfeit your joy in the Lord, and you're going to rob others of it as well. This is what Paul addresses next in verse 2 and 3. I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there was some drama here in uh, the church of Philippi. And where you have people, you will have drama. Um, but he says, I implore. That means to plead. He is pleading with these women. Resolve their issue. Be reconciled. It was something they both needed to work out. Uh, Paul never reveals the nature of this problem. Uh, he didn't take sides. These two women, we learn, have been serving the Lord at the church. They were in some form of leadership. Um, they were faithful workers in the gospel. But at some point, uh, they be, there was a parting of the ways, and they became ex extreme, uh, estranged. And, you know, division between two people can easily become the division of the church. And I have seen this happen. And so it's a very um, important issue when you have an, a problem to work it out. Paul urges them, be of the same mind. And he explained this in chapter 2 when he spoke about, uh, have, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Let everyone esteem others better than themselves. Have that mind of humility. And ladies, we're not always going to see eye to eye. We're not always going to approach things the same way. But the key in Paul's exhortation is in the Lord. We serve the Lord together. We don't have to insist on our rights, on our way, having things done the way we do it all the time. And you know, Paul understood, of all people, what church strife was like. Because he had a huge falling out with Barnabas when they were going on that second missionary journey. And um, Barnabas insisted they take Paul Mark. And Paul said, no way. He deserted us the last time. He didn't continue the work. They weren't of the same mind. And so there was a huge falling out. Barnabas left with a, another partner. Paul took Silas. Um, but we know they did resolve their issue. Because later on in Paul's life, he asks and sends for uh, Mark because he would be helpful in the ministry. Those things did get worked out. And so Paul even urges, this is such an uh, issue on his heart, he urges his true companion to help these women resolve this matter. And uh, we don't know who this was. Maybe it was Epaphroditus. Um, but now these women are accountable. This letter was read to the whole church. These women are accountable to work this out. But he mentions that their names were being written in the book of life. And I love that because it's a reminder that God takes note of all that we do. And it's just an encouragement for us 
to find that common ground with one another because God has a bigger plan than my small problem, my small issue. Our names are, are written in the Lamb's book of life. We need to keep that in our mind. Uh, people love to have their names written on the walls of hospitals for their giving or on a monument somewhere for their honor. Even taggers like to have their name uh, written over the freeway overpass. But God says your name is written in heaven. It is registered there. And what an awesome thing that is because we have a destination. We have a greater purpose than the things of this earth. So let's work out those issues. You know, unforgiveness is a tool of the enemy. It is always the effort of Satan to hinder God's people from standing firm together and presenting that united front with the enemy. And he would like nothing more than to take petty things to wedge us apart as believers and with those things light our flesh on fire. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 tells us, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So when we allow issues to linger, we don't resolve them. We are giving the enemy a foothold. So tonight, if you're here, and you have an issue with someone, I urge you to get it resolved. Do not let Satan have that foothold. Psalms 133.1 says, Behold how good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. This is what pleases the heart of God. In verse 4 and 5, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And so Paul's exhorting them, rejoice. He says it twice. Uh, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, always. This includes the good times and the bad times. There are always reasons we can rejoice in the Lord. You can't always rejoice in your circumstances, except to remember that God can work them out for your good. You don't rejoice because you broke your leg. But you do rejoice that God is with you. God will help you. God will heal you. And you can look to him. So I can rejoice and know that my God can do abundantly above whatever I ask or think. Even when my circumstances are difficult and my resources are few. My God is with me. My God is for me. I know that. I can rejoice in God. I think about Joseph. He was able to rejoice at the end of his life when his uh, brothers had come to him and he told them, uh, what you meant for evil, God used for good. If you recall, his brothers stripped him of that one precious garment his father gave him. They sent him off and sold him into slavery. And he ended up on the auction block in Egypt with nothing, completely stripped of his dignity, his security, his love of his family, his future, everything was gone. And yet he was able to rejoice in his God because God used these things in a good way in his life. And God will do the same for us. I remember when my mom went home to be with the Lord. I was 24, 
24 years old. It was such a huge loss for me. But I was able to rejoice in the Lord because she was with him. And God kept me. In Psalm 1611, he gave me this scripture. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In, in him, in his presence, fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. I can't find joy in my circumstances, but I can find joy in my God. And if you're here tonight and you are lacking joy, I encourage you, go into the presence of God. Recount to him the reasons he has brought joy into your life. And you will walk away changed. Nehemiah tells us in Nehemiah 8.10, when the people were so sad because they had realized they had not kept God's word. And they were in sorrow. And Nehemiah tells them, do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God, ladies, is the source of your joy, and the joy of the Lord is your strength. In Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, we read the words of Habakkuk, and he describes this so beautifully, how your circumstances can be so difficult, they can be so hard, but if you will look to God, you will have joy. He says, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high heels. Hills. And so here, Habakkuk is saying, everything in my life is not working out. It's not what I wanted it to be. I am in a position of lack, but I'm going to look to God and I will joy in the God of my salvation. God will establish my foothold. He had a trust in him. You see, Paul was able to rejoice in the Lord even while he was in prison, even though he might await possible death. He did not rejoice in being there in the circumstances but he rejoiced in the Lord who was with him, who gave him peace, and had who had written his name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so Paul goes on in verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. You see, when you have a confidence that God is working in your life, it becomes evident. It affects your witness for him. And so he says, let that gentleness that God places in your life, be known to all. That gentleness means moderation or sweet reasonableness, yielding to be gentle or kind. So our lifestyle is to reflect the Lord, to be gentle towards others, not selfish, not insisting on our way, on our rights, but willing to give way to others. And this, in fact, is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. So this gentleness is to be lived out among all men, not just believers, your friends, or when it's easy, but before all. Jesus said this, let your light so shine before men that they see your Father in heaven and glorify him. And why did he say we should live like this? Because the Lord is at hand. We are to live our lives in an awareness of God's 
presence with us. He is near us in both time and space. He is available to us right now with every need that we have. But he's also coming again. And we will receive the rewards promised to those who follow him. And let me ask you this, ladies. Would you handle yourself differently if Jesus were in view? Well, remember, he is that silent listener to every conversation. His presence is with us. We have confidence in the Lord that one day he will settle every wrong. And because of that, ladies, we do not have to worry. And that's just what Paul addresses next in verses 9, 6 through 9. Nothing will steal your joy like anxiety and worry. And Jesus told us that he has come, that we might have peace. And the pathway to that peace is prayer. Paul says in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Well, I love this scripture because I come from a long line of warriors, uh, and I need this verse tattooed on my eyelids so I just would be aware of it. Corey Ten Boom said this about worry. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. And isn't that so true? Worry often gives a small thing a big shadow. And we just shrink from that shadow, don't we? But 90% of the things we worry about never, ever happen. Now, the dictionary definition of anxious is to be afraid or nervous, especially about what may happen. That feeling of anxiety, to be troubled with care. And, you know, I think of the Apostle Paul. He had to have battled with this feeling. Look at his life. Look at his uh, situation that he's in at this point when he's writing. He didn't know the outcome of his imprisonment. And I know that God had to have comforted him with these words and how awesome that he's able to give them to us. He wasn't this super saint that just had it down. It was easy for him. No, he had to work at it. He had to put his full trust in God. He had to put shoe leather to his faith, just as we do. You know, Jesus addressed these issues himself when he spoke about worry in, um, in uh, Matthew chapter 6. And he tells us not to worry about our life, what we're to put on, what we're going to eat, what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, he said God takes account of all those things. Instead of being consumed, we are to seek first God's kingdom, put God first, and he will supply what we need. We learn about Paul's situation in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5. He explains to them when he came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. So Paul is experiencing fear and anxiety. Now to be anxious and worried is kind of a natural reaction to our situations when things just go crazy. They go out of control. Um, and our minds become so, so concerned. They not only come become concerned, they become consumed. 
And that's why we're told in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, um, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Those strongholds are holds that Satan has in our mind through worry, through fear, through anxiety. He says in verse 5, casting down argument, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Those thoughts that are making you fearful, they're coming against the knowledge of God. We are to bring them into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Because worry doesn't accomplish anything. We have to battle our fears. Take those fearful, anxious, worried thoughts captive. And ladies, it takes discipline. We have to replace that worried thought with scripture. And this takes my mind off my concern and it places it on God. And so we have to take captive the what if, the how come, the why. You see, worry is leaning on my understanding, how I can figure it out or fix it maybe. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us to not lean on our understanding. Bring everything to God and let him work it out. So we're to be anxious for what? Nothing. And pray about what? Everything. Small or great. Pray about everything. The cure for anxiety is prayer. 1 Peter 5, 7 says we're to cast all our care upon him for he cares for you. Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. He shall bring it to pass. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall what? Sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. We are to seek first his kingdom. Trust in God. Instead of being anxious, we are to pray. Luke 18, 1, Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Ladies, we lose heart because we don't pray. We must recognize our thoughts, bring them captive. You know, sometimes I pray, Lord, help me to be aware of my thoughts because there are those certain thought patterns. Once we start with that thought, it takes us so far down the road, we don't know how to get back. So if I nip it in the bud, if I bring it to God, if I turn to the scriptures, find a scripture that deals with that issue, memorize it, carry it around with you on a three by five card, in your phone, whatever you got to do to keep the word of God as your focus. Prayer is that place we quiet our soul before God. When we come to him in prayer, we recognize the greatness of our God, his ability, his willingness to help us. I think about David when he went up against Goliath. He did not focus on the size of Goliath, on his fierceness, on his resources. He focused on the size of his God. My God has uh, been able to help me against a lion, a bear. He will help me against this uncircumcised heathen. And ladies, when you come up against Goliath, you have to keep the size of your God in perspective. I'll never forget when I had um, a medical condition and it caused me to experience many, um, many symptoms that were neurological, like my eyes would feel like they're going to burst. I'd get really dizzy, feel like I'm going to pass out. Uh, my lips would go numb uh, and it would, I, I would start thinking about how I felt and oh my goodness, I'm pretty sure I have a brain tumor and 
You know, next thing you know, you're planning your funeral. And isn't this what we do? And you know, come to find out, took quite a few doctor visits, but I had a pinched nerve. I didn't have brain turmoil. I didn't need to plan my funeral. But that's what we do. That's what, what we do. And we need to go to God in prayer. And not look at the size of our problem, but the size of our God. Prayer links the praying sinner with the omnipotent God. And so Paul tells us to bring our supplications, those specific needs before him. When we ask God to meet a need, to help us with a specific issue. So pray specifically. I think about Jesus. Where did we find him on the most anxious night of his earthly life? In prayer, the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his heart to God, casting his cares upon God surrendering himself to the will of God because nothing good comes from worry but prayer accomplishes much. Jesus walked away from that time strengthened. He was strengthened for what lie ahead. We're also to come to God not only with our requests but with thanksgiving. Psalm 69 30 says, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. You know what worry does? It magnifies my problem. And did you know that if you hold a dime close enough to your eye, it can block your view of the sun? The sun is huge, but that little dime blocks your view. Our problems block our view of God. But as we come to him with thanksgiving, we magnify his name. We remember who our God is. Psalms 100 verse 4 says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. Oh, if we would just remember who our God is and be thankful for him. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything, give thanks. Give thanks to God. Thankfulness is the recalling of God's goodness and mercy. It is a reminder to us of his faithfulness. And to him, it's a declaration of our appreciation. Oh, how he loves to hear that. So worry for nothing, pray about everything. And what will be the result? The peace of God that passes understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This peace that passes all understanding. He gives it to us when we should not have it. It's a peace that we can experience. You know, the world, the peace they give, uh, just dulls your senses. It distracts you. They give out pills so you don't feel things. Distractions so you're not uh, thinking about the issue. But in the midst of your problem, your situation, he gives you an understanding that passes surpasses your understanding you don't know how you should have this but he will give it you know when the lord took my mom home he gave me this peace when i was just falling apart in the midst of loss did i cry my eyes out yes i did but i had peace i knew god was with me i knew that she was with him and i did have a peace Because we don't sorrow like those who have no hope. God gives us peace.
Paul says that uh, we are guarded by this peace. <clears throat> Remember, he was guarded by Roman soldiers. They were attached to him day and night. And that's what God's peace is like, attached to your life, whatever you're going through. It guards our hearts and minds. It guards us from uh, those destructive thoughts and feelings that we have. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And you see, ladies, that's our part. We have to keep our mind stayed on him. And his part, he keeps us in that perfect peace. In verse 8, Paul addresses our thought life. He says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So instead of worry, we're to train our thoughts, discipline our thoughts, to meditate, to think on those things that Paul has listed. Because thoughts are real, thoughts are powerful. That's why 2 Corinthians 10.5 says we've got to bring those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. You know, when I think about bringing my thoughts captive, I think of them like wild beasts. Sometimes like, uh, I don't know if you saw the movie Jurassic Park, but T-Rex just terrorizing me. And you've got to bring that captive. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I have to do it minute by minute, moment by moment, all day long. It brings effort to bring those thoughts subject to Christ. And you know what's really disturbing? Sometimes we like to think on those thoughts that uh, take our peace away. And they eat at our peace. But we have to bring our thoughts captive. <clears throat> the best way I have found to do it to find a scripture that deals with that issue and memorize it. I have to refuse that thought. But not only that, I have to replace that thought with scripture. And I love this list that Paul gives us because it's a real good uh, list for us to filter our thought life through. He says, to think on whatsoever things are true. Not half true, part true. Because Satan's... Uh, operates with lies and he controls our minds um, with that strategy of partial truth. Uh, but we're to think on what is true. What is true? God's word is true. John 17, 7. And the things that correspond to reality. And I'm going to give you a little newsflash here. Your emotions and your feelings are not always true. And so they feel strong. Sometimes they're founded on Half-truth, incorrect information, experiences from our past. But they can't be trusted. We're not to lean on our understanding. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, Scripture says. But we're to think on things that are noble and just. And this refers to what is honest, worthy of respect, what is right. Thoughts that are fair to all parties involved. Whatsoever is pure, lovely, of good report refers to what is chaste and modest, things that are beautiful, acceptable, pleasing. A good report, things that are worth talking about. If they're not worth talking about, they're not worth thinking about. As believers, we're to keep our thoughts on what is good. Steer them away from what is corrupt, the corruption of the world, the corruption of our flesh. Virtue and praiseworthy are those thoughts that cause us to want to do better 
to think of others in the best light. First uh, Corinthians 13 talks about love. Love thinks no evil. Wow. If we sift our mind and our thoughts through this checklist, we might not have that much to think about, right? Our minds could be a little empty. But this is the thought, the, the checklist Paul's given us. And Paul was a doer of these things because he was able to be an example. In verse 9, he says, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So I love how Paul was this example and how his uh, witness for his life went out. You know, if you order your thoughts to be right, then your actions will also be right. What you think about will determine what you do. And Paul was an example of this. He was an example to them as he taught them. They had received his teaching. So we must not only learn God's truth, but we receive it in our lives as we obey it. And then we are truly transformed. This is what Paul had experienced. He'd become that example to them. They had heard his words. They had seen the godly lifestyle that he portrayed. And I'm going to tell you what, ladies. You are an example to someone. There are people, whether it's your children, your co-workers, your family, your friends, they are watching your life. And we must live out the principles of God's word. What did the people in your life learn? What did they receive from you? What do they hear? What do they see in your life? Remember Jesus said, let your light so shine that God will be glorified. We're to let the peace of God rule in our heart. The last point we're going to talk about is that of contentment in verses 10 through 23. In verse 10 through 13, Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So here, Paul tells him, first of all, one of the main reasons that he wrote this letter. It was a thank you note to the Philippians because they had sent a gift with Epaphroditus and delivered it to Paul. And he is thanking them for that. He is rejoicing. This financial gift was an expression to him of God's love and care and concern. God had used the Philippian church. And you never know as you give, um, and God has prompted you, what it will mean for the receiver. And this wasn't the first time that they had given to Paul. Uh, whenever the opportunity arose, they were more than willing to give. And I think about the gifts that you ladies put together for Elam Ministries to minister to the women of Iran as they went to their conference. And how blessed Christina was to see everything that you had done. And it blesses God's heart as well. In these verses, Paul reveals the secret of contentment. And you want to know what it is? It is learned. It is a learned behavior. The word learned means by experience. And so that means Paul went through many experiences that taught him to be content. 
um, he says that he had learned to draw upon the strength of Christ when he had need. And that's what is expressed in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, whether it is in time of plenty or time of poverty, whether my circumstances are going the way I want them to or they're not, whether I am full or I'm empty. I can rely on Christ. He is the one that produces contentment in my heart. Paul said instead of being a victim of his circumstances, he was a victor over them. And so contentment must be learned. Learned from God. Contentment is not complacency, nor is it a false sense of peace. It is being satisfied with what God allows in your life. When you are content, God is enough. You are complete in him, Colossians 2.10 tells us. It's not about being this super Christian where you finally get to this place where everything's okay. But it's about wherever you're at, drawing upon the strength of God and trusting him to meet your need. 1 Timothy 6, 6-8 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we will be content. We are to be content with the things God gives us. Um, the commentator Clark said this, For I have learned, I am so satisfied with the wise provisions and goodness of God, that I know whatever he determines is the best. And therefore, I am perfectly contented that he should govern the world in the way which seems best to his godly wisdom. How true is the proverb, a contented mind is a continual feast. What do we get by murmuring and complaining? And yet, isn't that where we find ourselves many, many times? When the circumstances of my life don't fall into a favorable situation for me? Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And Paul tells us the scope of his contentment. Everywhere and in all things. Every area of his life was surrendered to God. He was content when things went his way, when things were going good. And when they weren't, he trusted in the strength of Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He didn't focus his attention on what he did not have, but on his God. And when he was needy, he learned to be content with God's provision and God's presence. In uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, we read about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And God taught him that he could be strengthened by God in time of need. He has this thorn in the flesh, and it was keeping him, he felt, from being able to minister the way he wanted and to do the work the way he wanted to. So he prays three times, Oh God, take this away from me. And in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12, um, this is God's reply to him. 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong, because I can draw upon the strength of Christ. Paul is saying, um, no matter how things turn out, everywhere, in all things, I can have this contentment because Christ is my sufficiency. He will give me strength that I don't have in and of myself to have contentment at all times. So no matter how things turn out, everywhere and in all things, you can be content as you recognize God is sovereign in your life. God is with you. God is for you. And God is able to work all things together for your good. Are you struggling with contentment tonight? Memorize these verses. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Don't look at the size of your need or the size of your problem. Look at the size of your God. Paul goes on to share in 14 through 18 um, that the Philippians had done well. He says, Nevertheless, you've done well, that you've shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent again aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So the giving of the Philippians um, is praised by Paul. They had helped him in the ministry before. He commends them for sharing in his distress. And he says from the very beginning, they had uh, partnered with him in giving and receiving. That first convert of their church, Lydia, she was so gracious to Paul, insisting that he come to her house and uh, stay in her home and she would take care of him. And so it was a very giving church. And he brings out how they had helped him so many times before. But Paul didn't write this because he was seeking a gift. But he was seeking the benefit that their giving had before God. And how God would um, bless them for the way in which they gave. I don't seek the gift, he says. But uh, the motive that they gave to him would increase in the blessings of God in their life. And God recognizes everything that we do. There is no good thing that you do that goes unnoticed. In Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Everything you do, as you serve God in ministry, as you minister I know some of you go out there and you make meals for ladies who've just had a baby or been through surgery, and you are giving. It is a work, a labor of love. Maybe you um, help the needy, the poor, and God takes note. He will not forget that work. In Hebrews 13, 6, uh, there's the admonition, Do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. 
Sometimes it is that sacrifice, but God takes notice of it. And those sacrifices are like that sweet smelling aroma before God. Acts 20, 35, um, he says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so Paul has described their gift as a plant that flourishes. Uh, it is fruit. It is an acceptable sacrifice. And as we give to the work of God, to the people of God, to the ministry, God takes note and God repays with blessings uh, more than we can take in. In verse 19 through 23, Paul closes the letter with, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Great every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And so Paul closes with, they had supplied a particular need of Paul's, but he says, God will supply all your need. Maybe not all your wants, but he definitely will supply all of our needs. You know, sometimes we want things. We think they're needs, but God begs to differ with us. Um, and God does not grant things that are just wants. He grants our needs. The things we truly need, he will supply. Paul was saying, I cannot repay this gift, but he is confident that his God would repay them over and above because our God is rich and he gives according to his riches and glory. God has an unending supply. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. God is going to supply the needs that you have in order to do the work that he's called you to do. Whether that abundance manifests itself in energy, resources, spiritual gifts, material, whatever it is, God will supply that need. I love Psalm 23 because... It says that God, the Lord, is my shepherd. I shall not want. God will supply. And it goes on to list out all the ways in which God supplies the needs that we have. We shall not want because God is our shepherd. He is leading us. He is meeting our need. He is providing for us. He is protecting us. He is granting us the peace that passes understanding. Psalm 84.11 says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So whatever your need is tonight, he will not withhold whatever is good in your life. Paul concluded this letter with a doxology, just praising God. And he greets the saints and he commends them to the grace of God. And Paul makes mention of the saints in Caesar's household um, because these saints were the fruit of Paul's imprisonment. Yes, Paul's difficult hardship, um, the situation he was living in that was not to, to his liking. It was hard for him. 
yet it produced this fruit. Saints, uh, people were born again in the household of Caesar. Maybe these people would never have heard the gospel, never responded had it not been for Paul being in that prison at that time. And you don't know what God is doing in your life through your difficulty, through your hardship, the opportunities that God has to use you. Because our difficulties, our trials, our hardship are God's opportunities to use us. Never forget that. You might be in the most undesired position or place in your life, but that place is an opportunity for God to use your life for his kingdom and glory. You see, Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And that abundance includes joy, peace, and contentment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you give us joy, peace, and contentment. Not just when our life is going the way we want, but when it goes the way we don't want and it's difficult, we can experience the joy in the Lord. We can have the peace that passes understanding. And we can be content knowing that you have provided everything that we need. Our strength is in you. We thank you and praise you and ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.